Wrestling fans, and welcome to Shut Up and Wrestle, a wrestling history podcast about good conversations and great stories. I am your host, Brian R. Solomon, and this is episode 103, in which I will be talking all about the Iron Claw, the motion picture that recently came out last month that a lot of fans have been talking about, especially old school wrestling fans. And I'm going to be talking about it with a longtime friend and colleague of mine, Ms. B.J. Colangelo. We will get to that in just a moment. Before I do, I would like to make mention of a few quick things. First of all, I would like to thank the people at the 1A Talk Show who had me on their show, which was broadcast across NPR stations last week. You may have heard it. The 1A is a weekly news and entertainment discussion show, and I was Honored to be a part of the show, talking about the importance of wrestling to our culture. And it did air live on the radio, but if you didn't hear it, I also posted the link to it on the Shut Up and Wrestle Facebook group. So just another reason to join the Shut Up and Wrestle Facebook group. Also want to make mention of the fact that the new issue of Pro Wrestling Illustrated, the April issue, should be going on sale digitally just as this issue hits. And it has the year-end awards issue, so that's always a very popular one. It is available at pwi-online.com. And for those physical media people out there, just like me, in a couple more weeks, it will also be available in print form at newsstands or everywhere else. And finally, I want to mention a book that I was recently sent by an actual previous guest of the show, Sheldon Goldberg. You may remember that episode. I I will never forget his classic Yul Brenner story. But Sheldon sent me a copy of a new book that he has written. It is actually a novel. It's a work of fiction called The Last Fall. And it is set in the pro wrestling business of the 70s, 80s, and 90s in the so-called kayfabe era, let's say. But not the the one that you may remember. It's kind of an alternate universe version of the pro wrestling industry where things are kind of the same, but not quite. And the names are all different and you may recognize certain things and other things are new. But uh, I've just started it myself and I recommend taking a look at it. It's called The Last Fall by Sheldon Goldberg. Sheldon, thank you so much for sending that along my way. Now, let's get to this week's conversation. I had so many thoughts about the movie The Iron Claw that I wanted to kind of save them all for one giant episode that I would dedicate just to that movie. And to do that, I brought on board somebody who, like me, kind of crosses the worlds of film, film writing, film criticism, and pro wrestling. BJ is somebody that I've worked with in the past for years. We originally crossed paths and worked together in the 
realm of horror films and horror film writing and blogging and criticism. And that was a very long time ago, but it just so happens that her interests also lie in the world of professional wrestling. So I felt that she was the perfect person to bring on board for this week's episode. And of course, it goes without saying, but I'm going to say it anyway, that this episode is riddled with spoilers, if you can call them spoilers, on a story that a lot of us know very well and a story that's decades old. But nevertheless, if you haven't seen The Iron Claw yet and you want to remain untainted when you go into it, then you might want to wait a little bit to listen to this episode. If you've already seen the movie or you haven't seen it yet but you really don't care, then go right ahead and listen now. Either way, I think you're going to enjoy my conversation with BJ Colangelo, and I'm going to take you to it right now. Okay, so for the longest time, I've been mentioning on the show about how I wanted to talk about the Iron Claw, and I've been saving it for this episode. It's my pleasure to welcome somebody to the show who I have known for a very long time, 15 years now maybe, um, somebody who I've worked with in the past, and I'm excited to do this today. She is a film critic, a filmmaker, a lifelong wrestling fan. She is the resident wrestling writer for the movie website slash film, and most importantly and pertinent to today's discussion, she was actually present at the red carpet premiere of The Iron Claw in Texas. I'd like to welcome to the show BJ Colangelo. BJ, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to finally get to really dive in and talk about this movie. Yeah, I know. It's a, First of all, I have to say I'm super jealous that you even got to go to the premiere because um, it looked like it was a fun time. And, it, and there were some there were some I mean, John Cena met MJF there. I mean, how amazing is that? So John Cena met MJF at the Hollywood one. I was oh, lucky God, in yeah. Dallas to you see. Here's the thing. Nobody told me who was going to be there, what was going on. I knew obviously the cast was going to be there. And then I'm sitting in the theater, kind of just screwing around on my phone, not really paying attention. And I could just feel like an ethereal presence. And I look up and like Trish Stratus is there. And I was like, no one told me Trish Stratus is going to be here. And now I got to play it cool. Wow. (laughs) And Kevin Von Eric was there, right? Wasn't he? Yes, Kevin was there, which was one of those things where you can grow up seeing somebody on TV or you can know a person, you know, I've obviously seen him in 10 bazillion documentaries at this point, but then you stand next to a person and they become tangible. They stop being sort of this, this idea in your mind. Um, Very wonderful, kind human being. And I was privileged the next day as well. There was a press conference um, at a hotel in Dallas. This is the the press conference where Jeremy Allen White talked about, you know, understanding the art form of wrestling. And it went very viral because people were like, he gets it. The guy gets it. Um, I was in the room where that happened, which was really something to behold because you could feel the energy of everybody in that room kind of connecting immediately and recognizing, oh, they did their homework. They they did their homework with this. And I think I had heard that they actually had uh, Bill Mercer at the premiere in Dallas, who was the actual TV announcer for World Class, who I think is still he, he has the record for being the oldest living person who was affiliated in any way with pro wrestling. He's like almost 100 <laughs> years old. I thought that was cool. Oh, yeah, there was there was definitely some, you know, old guard guys that were there. This was a big deal. 
And being at the Dallas premiere was such an honor. Um, I could not believe I got to go. Um, Loved being there. But it was such a sight to see because, yeah, Hollywood premieres are cool. They are cool. But it's an entirely different beast when it's Dallas, when it is, you know, the community where this is, you know, embedded in their DNA. This is the fabric of their regional culture. And to see the way that Dallas loves the Von Ericks, like in getting to witness it firsthand as somebody who wasn't alive for, you know, a majority of, of their, of their, of their reign. So it was a, it, it was wonderful. It was very humbled. Um, very, very honored to have been there. And it's still, it's such a part of the fabric of, of the whole, you know, environment down there. Like I, I know from talking to people and you can't say this about everywhere and about every wrestling territory or heritage. It's like, if you talk to people in that area, it's either like, yes, I'm old enough. I remember those days. Oh my God, the Von Erics or It'll be, oh, my God, my mom still talks about the Von Erich boys all the time. Like, I know what (laughs) I I don't even know what this is, but she won't shut up about the Von Erichs. And like, it's still something that's well remembered. And you know what, too? And I I was I was kind of let down that they didn't include this in the movie. They had this weird crossover. Well, it wasn't weird. It was like very orchestrated um, in Israel. They were like a big deal in Israel. I don't know if you knew that, like the TV Mm -hmm. show, the TV show got carried there. And they became a phenomenon. And I say this because, like, I've met people. I remember when I was a kid in Brooklyn, I had friends that were Israeli, and they would say, oh, you like wrestling? The Von Erics. All they wanted to talk about was the Von Erics. <laughs> and I would be like, how the hell do you know about the Von Erics? And they explained to me how they got this TV deal in Israel, and Kevin Von Erich is still like a celebrity there. It's very bizarre, but but that wasn't mentioned in the movie. But it, it also goes to show how they were more than just a territory they were mm. they were a huge deal like world class was at its height maybe the biggest wrestling company um in the business like for a very brief moment they were maybe even for like a year they got really really hot and i think the movie did a good job of portraying that like that's one of the things i really liked about it how it really got across to you um how important it was and they did i know people have We'll talk about this. People like to nitpick (laughs) all the inaccuracies. Michael Hayes didn't have that color trunks and things like that. Right, right. But they did their homework about a lot of things and the way like they made you understand. They made you understand how the territory system worked. They made you understand why the NWA world title was important. Like those are things that a lot of movies, I think a lot of scripts wouldn't have taken the time to properly uh, get Mm -hmm. across, you know? Mm -hmm. No, I agree completely. And like one of the first takeaways that I had is when you're sitting there and you're watching the movie on the big screen and you get that shot of the sportatorium, which like, obviously it's not the same sportatorium. It's going to look a little different. You can't recreate that, you know, pitch perfect. That's such, such an enormous cost to a production, but just the energy of knowing like this was the place to be is that everybody who's anybody is going to go and they're going to go tailgating and you're going to watch a wrestling match and you're going to, you know, cheer and boo and drink and have a good time. It's like, God, places like this kind of don't exist anymore. Everybody's just renting out church gyms and it's just (laughs) not the same. It's not the same. And it really made me nostalgic for something that I never got to even experience. 
I felt the same way because even though, yes, yes, I was alive at that time. I was not, you know, I was a, <laughs> I was a little kid and I didn't have an, so much of an awareness of wrestling or of the different companies and territories and things like I watched it a little on TV, but we were spoiled in New York. I mean, we had Madison Square Garden, which is like a whole mm -hmm. other level. That's like your big, big time. We never really had the sense of of more of like the local kind of like studio wrestling and the small arenas and things. I had the youth center in my neighborhood that would get WWF every once in a while, but it was a very minor show. I thought they captured it more than even just the sportatorium. They captured that feel of like the hot regional territory, the small venue, which is still like a mecca where everybody wants to be and just... Yeah, and I and when I don't, I think it was, this was a different scene. But when they hit the montage for Modern Day Warrior, that like literal needle drop with Mike Von Erich putting the needle on the mm -hmm. record, I had chills from the beginning to the end of that. Like I literally, if you were sitting next to me, you would have had to lift my jaw up and put it back because it was just so well done, and it captured the whole Von Erich. Thing, the energy of it and why people responded to them so well it was perfect I agree completely and you know I know we'll get into it of like the nitpicky things but this also is a movie that loves professional wrestling and the art of wrestling more than just about any movie I've ever seen about wrestling. Um, a lot Definitely. of times you end up with either the Darren Aronofsky the wrestler approach where it's like you can feel the camera looking down on the people participating in this. Like you mm. should feel bad. You've been, you know, you've had to stoop so low that you're into wrestling. Like it feels very much like it's painting it in a way that the audience is supposed to pity in a sense. Or it ends up having this like, well, WWE clearly produced this and there is a lot of sheen and it is a little too clean and everything looks very, very manufactured because they've done 55 million takes because they want it to look as best as humanly possible. Um, and that's also not wrestling. Wrestling is an imperfect science. And sometimes it's not as clean as it possibly could be. Sometimes you don't connect every single hit. Um, and this movie did such a great job, I think, at not only working around the limitations of the performers, knowing when to pull back so that we are getting, you know, the stunt people stepping in and really going for it. But it also makes wrestling look like the most exciting thing in the world, which it is like fans already know this. But for a general audience that looks at wrestling as a quote unquote lowest common denominator sport it makes it look like the coolest thing in the world because in order for this story to be effective, you have to buy into the fact that the Von Erics are essentially folklore superheroes and you got to make them look cool. And that montage makes them look real cool. <laughs> yes. And, and I think that's sometimes what, what gets lost when you have people who are just, Fanatic wrestling fans, of which I am one, and, you know, hit wrestling history buffs, of which I am one, and they just want something that's tailored just directly to them. And mm -hmm. I said this, and I sort of made a joke about it, but it's like you can't make a movie for 500 world-class fans that, you know, you know what I mean? You have to... Mm -hmm. You have to be thinking of the bigger audience and what they're going to take away from it. And... But they... But, they did enough that made me happy. I mean, 
throwaway things that just show how they did their homework. Like you have a scene where Fritz is on the phone with Sam Muchnick and it's like a throwaway thing where he just says the name Sam and you don't know who the hell Sam is, but I'm sitting there going, oh, Sam Muchnick. He was, you know, mm -hmm. former president of the NWA. He was like a big shot. This makes sense that he'd be talking to him or just the fact that they knew enough to change the design of the NWA belt later in the movie when Flair comes back in 86 and he's got the big gold belt. Like there's things like that where that was enough for me. I don't need perfection in, uh, you know, there are things that I could quibble about plot wise that we might want to talk about that I thought would have worked better if they were a little more faithful, but I don't need all these details to be perfectly faithful for the movie to work for me. I, just, I think the number one goal is just making the best movie. And I think it also has to be said that, you know, I think we have a lot to be grateful for as fans that like you said, this material being treated respectfully, being treated seriously, not being looked down on or made fun of. If you had told me that I'd one day be sitting in a theater watching a movie dramatization of a Von Erichs versus Freebirds match in the Dallas Sportatorium, <laughs> like I would have laughed in your face, you know, but here we are. So I think there's something to be said for that. It's pretty damn cool. I think so, too. And, you know, this is just sort of my overall approach to film in general, um, not just specifically the Von Erichs or wrestling, but it is not a work of narrative fiction's job to double as academic education. Um, and if you are looking for that, you will be sorely disappointed. Um, if you want the facts, if you want all of the nitty gritty detail, watch a documentary, read a book. That is what that form and that medium is meant for narrative fiction is not meant to do those things and there are so many little things that were tweaked in terms of you know continuity or timeline wise i mean obviously kevin von eric's sons were born after his daughters but this is a movie that is dealing so much with themes of masculinity that for that narrative arc to work the boys have to come first and so those changes are made and it's not to be disrespectful it's not to say I don't care about the history. It's because we need to be able to tell this story and make sure that these themes land with an audience. And in order for those themes to land, little changes have to be made. Um, and I've seen this movie now four times um, because I am very lucky to have seen it in the in the uh, in the theater for the premiere. Um, I also, as a critic, get, you know, for your consideration discs. My quote is actually on the for your consideration disc for this movie. And I got very emotional about it. I was not expecting to see my name on this disc and know that that disc went to probably everyone who worked on it. And I was like, oh, they get to know I like this movie. Um, but because of that, I've gotten to watch it a lot at home and cry a lot because it's a, you know, it's a cathartic cry. It feels nice to cry sometimes. And uh, the more that I watch this movie, the less I care about the little nitpicks that I had during my initial watch or even, you know, the kind of egregious absence of of Chris, um, that stuff sort of fades away because I'm now able to really see what the story is that 
Sean Durkin was trying to tell. And Sean Durkin is a lifelong wrestling fan. And he grew up watching, you know, tapes that he could find of, you know, world class when he was living in England at the time. So this is something that he cares deeply about. He takes very seriously. And I think the work reflects that as well. When you see why decisions were made, all of his decisions feel very, very intentional. And that's just from me as an observer. And well, the Chris thing, which, you know, obviously I, I definitely want to talk about. So I'm glad you brought it up because at, when we were talking, I know you, you know, that going into it, I was really bummed about that. I was really, it was, there was something that felt so wrong. And I think it was because Chris's whole story was that he felt bad about being left out of the Von Eric family. Like, right. And they literally left him out <laughs> right. like he doesn't exist, literally doesn't exist. There was something so like, oh, I can't even put it into words. But coming out of the movie, I understand why they did it. I have to say mm -hmm. I do, because even the way it was, one of my if, if, I, if you know, to make any gripes about the movie is that it did start to feel like, oh, my God, it's like, OK, this guy died, then this guy died, then this guy died. And it's like dominoes falling. And you think to yourself, like, maybe this movie should have been like three hours or something. This is a lot to get through. And then you think, imagine if they had to do one more. And, and you know, because as you know, look, you're a filmmaker and we study film and you have to you can't just portray events. You have to build up these characters. It's like wrestling. Right. You have to you have to get them over. You have to make people care about them. Then you lead to whatever happens to them. So to invest all that time in one more person um would have been a hard thing to do narratively. I mean, especially as morbid as it is with the idea that Chris's death and Carrie's were very similar. Um, mm -hmm. In fact, the reason in the movie that we see Carrie shoot himself under that tree is because that is what Chris did. He did that in a response to Chris of just being so heartbroken about losing Chris. And so I just don't know how you fit all that. I mean, it's, it's a lot of heartbreak mm -hmm. in one movie, you know? Definitely. And being in conversation with people who don't know anything about wrestling, a lot of them come to me first because, you know, I'm the wrestling person they know. And they're like, oh, my God, this movie. And then my response is always, so how do you feel if I tell you that it's sadder? And they're like, how is it sadder? And I'm like, well, there's another brother. Uh, Carrie had, you know, some substance abuse issues. David lost a child. They're like, I, I, what? And I'm like, yeah, it's worse. Like, it's so much sadder. And they're like, I couldn't have handled that. And I'm like, correct. That is that is exactly it. And I think thematically speaking from a filmmaking perspective, another thing with Chris is so personally my feeling is I love Baz Luhrmann's Elvis and I love Sofia Coppola's Priscilla. I think they are incredible companion piece films telling a similar story from two very, very different perspectives. I think that somebody should make specifically a Chris Von Eric movie as a kind of side companion or response to the Iron Claw because Sean Durkin very clearly wanted to tell a film that would be cathartic to Kevin Von Eric that yes. is about the the one who survived and what that feels like and what carrying that grief must be like and what enduring that grief must feel like. The story of Chris Von Eric is, as somebody referred to it on Twitter, like so cartoonishly tragic um not as in like it's silly but it is so unbelievably tragic of 
you know, everything that he endured, how he was the brother that wasn't, you know, he wasn't tall enough. He had brittle bone disease. He was the sick kid. He didn't get to be the big superstar Von Eric like they did. And then he died. Like, it's awful. If you introduce that character in this story, mm. the audience's focus will immediately go to him because on paper, it is already the saddest part of the whole story. And so then it gets a lot harder to invest in Kevin's story as the survivor because people have this natural inkling. They, they want the Rudy story. They want to focus on that. So I think that a, a good way to, I don't know, remedy or just to add on like to yes and the iron claw is like chris chris should have his own movie because mm. his his own story is its own world and it's one that's not talked about because he wasn't one of the 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 trio you know yeah he was the one that wrestled the least he was the one that appeared on tv the least and so from a wrestling point of view it's like it almost seemed like he was an afterthought but his story was the most tragic and i i i think that's a great point where I could totally see how the movie would then gravitate towards that character. And you would have to, in a way, because it's the worst story of them all. I mean, there were choices like that that were made where you could clearly tell they knew there were certain things that would distract a non-wrestling viewer. Correct. And so like like a big one for me, I mean, I got a chuckle out of it at the beginning. I knew they were going to do this. Like when they flash back in black and white and they show Fritz von Erich as a wrestler, as a heel wrestler, they didn't get into any of the thing of like, hey, by the way, he was a, his character was he was a Nazi. Right. Um, because they don't then even that bother. Becomes, that becomes the right. thing. And it also becomes a lot <laughs> harder to empathize with these boys in general, where it's like, why are y'all still using the Nazi name? What What's happening here? I why think, is that the name? <laughs> right. Especially like wrestling people get it. We, we get it. But if you're right. not a wrestling person, I think what you do, if you show that at the beginning, if you show it's fun, Eric Goose stepping around the ring with an iron cross and all this. Then the average person, like my wife sitting there with me, is going to spend the rest of the movie going like, well, wait a minute. What happened to that Nazi stuff? Why was he a Nazi? I don't understand. Uh, why are they still calling themselves that? Um, and there's no need for that. You don't need to get caught up in that. I also thought it was very telling how maybe to the point of the Chris stuff, they don't actually – they reference the baby. They reference Jack Jr., Mm -hmm. They show him at the end, which was like the gut punch of all gut punches. Can't even mm -hmm. talk about it. But, but um, oh, my God. I've never done this before on my show. I'm sorry. I cry on my podcast all the time, and I talk <laughs> I, about teen girl movies. So well, you're right. <laughs> I never have, but I have a little boy that age, as you know. Um, mm -hmm. No, but they don't actually show what happened to him. In fact, they don't even explain what happened to him they just sort of reference well he died as a boy it was an accident or something happened and i think part of that is yeah it's like so much tragedy my god like how could a, well, how could how you, you handle have, all of it how do you even have that conversation because obviously we learn about jack when kevin is talking to pam and he has that like the the line that definitely puts a lump in my throat of like he just wasn't there to play with anymore which is like mm -hmm. i can't handle that oh my god because you can't just be sitting in a diner with a girl on a first date and it's like well tell me about your brothers well he electrocute drowned and it's like what? right what? like you can't drop that kind of a bomb on somebody like i'm a i'm a pancreatic cancer survivor i have to be very careful with how i talk to people about that because the second i say oh yeah i had cancer they're like oh i'm so sorry 
oh, I had pancreatic cancer. How are you alive? Look, I don't want to go down that road either. Let's not. Right. Well, yeah. And, and there's a couple of things that that brings up to my mind. And I know, you know, our conversations on this show always jump all over the place. That's kind of what the show's about. So I'm mm-hmm. glad that you could roll with the punches. But there's a couple of ideas that I had that were provoked by what you've been saying. One is, before I forget about it, I want to talk about that scene because one of the things that people have brought up, we both know that whole crowd of why are there sex scenes in movies, like that whole segment of the fan Mm -hmm. base of like, why do we need? And there were people who were like, why did we need to see uh, Kevin Von Erich lose his virginity or whatever? Why was that? Oh, it's so important. (laughs) Why did we need to see David Von Erich beating off in the shower? And also so important. Right. It is. It is. But here's the thing with the Kevin thing. I mean, we could leave the David thing alone, but with the Kevin thing, it's like um, that not just that scene, and but even the diner scene. I said this, I leaned over and I said this to Jamie while we were watching the movie. It's like it gets across in a, what, a very um, conscious way what the appeal was to women of the Von Erich boys. And the appeal was that they were so innocent And they were so like, they were beautiful, but they were like untainted, you know? And it was like this, these women that in this weird way, like you see it with the Beatles, you see it all the time. It's like, they were attracted to them sexually, but in another weird way, it's like, they also wanted to be their mom. You know what I mean? That's, that's very much a thing. And so I think it's not even just like now we see the interest through Pam's lens. We also, as the audience are seeing that a lot of times we look at these great athletic figures throughout history as, you know, these larger than life people, they, they are the coolest, they're the fastest, they're the most handsome, they're the sexiest, they're whatever. And sometimes they are just down home, Southern boys, just nice boys Mm -hmm. that don't know anything about sex, that have been sheltered from (laughs) this world, that this is not who they are. They are not Casanovas. They're boys. Like, this is why even, you know, as adults, people still called them the Von Erich boys. They were not the Von Erich men. They were boys. And it's because there was something so boyish about them and yeah that's definitely part of the appeal but it also kind of makes what they went through even worse because you're recognizing they didn't have the emotional regulation Mm -hmm. to deal with this much grief like they just didn't and that's usually something that we associate with children and that's not to infantilize them by any stretch of the imagination it's to just acknowledge the fact that they were not equipped with those emotional tools they just weren't and you I, like that's not a bad thing. It's an uh, it's an honest depiction. And seeing you know, <laughs> Pam ask Kevin like, "Have you done this before?" And he's like, "Uh, like that's a very real experience too. You can be the most like the the hottest athlete, the most like popular person in the world, and still not know everything and not be experienced in everything." And I thought that was a really beautiful way to to showcase that. And and you know what I said I was I was gonna leave the David thing alone but I can't so I'm gonna just quickly say about it like you know somebody I saw a comment from somebody that said like well what what service to the plot did this serve like what what did this um, you know how important was this and I said something like I am glad that there are still people making movies where not everything that happens perfectly services the plot in some 
perfectly functional way. Like sometimes, you know what it is? It's a quirky throwaway moment that just shows you like you're dealing with like some testosterone ridden boys all living together in a house. And this is the kind of shit that happens in a house full of boys yes. in their 20s. It doesn't have to be anything bigger than that. It's just quirky. It's funny. It and reminded that's exactly what it is. Like, I did not grow up with brothers. I can imagine what it was like, but I didn't have <laughs> brothers. But the second that happens, it's like, I know exactly what this dynamic is. I like the fact that they are all in beds that <laughs> yes. seem like a little bit too small. They're like the three all, stooges, you know? Because they're <laughs> all so huge. But yeah, and like, because it's not just that David is jerking off in the shower. It's also that Mike has to take a crap. Like that is, that's what makes that scene so great because both of them need the bathroom and need the privacy for very different reasons. And that's like one of those little minor things that that's just siblings. Like that's just what it is. I I didn't have brothers, but anybody that's ever had a, had raised sons or had a, a you know a, a boy in the house or was the boy in the house knows the experience of what the hell how long has he been <laughs> in that bathroom and then you're like okay i don't know how to yes i know why he's in that bathroom like like we know that it's like a part of life and and it just like it's slice of life stuff and mm-hmm. that was so important and cool to have and I think it speaks to something I wanted to mention before that I'll tie into because you were saying how people have this attitude of like, well, I want the facts and I'm trying to, you know, I heard I had people saying, well, I didn't really learn. Oh, this killed me. I didn't really learn anything that I didn't already know. Like, I don't know why I went to see that. Like, I was going there. to Like, why Again, are you why going? Why is a movie a teacher for you? Right. What, it, what is happening? <laughs> I think it, it's a don't you think it's like a media literacy thing? It's like people don't know it how to watch is. movies. It absolutely is. And like the thing I go back to all the time is there is a very, very famous quote from Roger Ebert, bless his soul, where he says that movies are machines for empathy. The only thing that you should be, quote unquote, learning from movies is that empathy is learning how to see the stories of other people and feel some kind of way about them. Like let the, let them make you laugh or let them make you cry. But if you're like, no one is going to see Oppenheimer and going home and being like, well, now I know how to make nuclear bombs. Sweet. Like that's no, that's not what a movie is for. The, the, the thing that this movie does so well is that if I wanted all the facts, Dark Side of the Ring exists. I can go watch that. I can go do that. I can go read a book. I can go read an interview. I can do any, all of that information exists. But what is not included in any of those things, even if they are done well, is the emotional severity. It doesn't ask the audience to reel in and connect and have that emotional connection. This movie does that. This movie cares infinitely more about making you feel for these boys and as as well, making you look at them as people and as brothers and not just as a laundry list of facts that some true crime podcaster is going to list with a slideshow on YouTube because it's so sensational. Let's talk about the Von Eric curse and all these deaths. Did you know that this happened? Yeah, I fucking know this happened. Sorry for swearing. But it's like, yes, I know that this happened. I don't need someone to tell me this happened. What I want to see is the stuff that I don't already know, which is 
how heartbreaking this is, how heavy it is to carry these things, the quiet moments in between that you don't get to see in something that is so sterile because that's what a lot of documentaries tend to be is sterile because they have to be unbiased they have to be presenting the facts as is narrative fiction doesn't have to do that right and even you know setting aside the extra layer of complication that as we know even sometimes documentaries have a certain slant or bias oh of course especially if it's being produced by you know people who have a vested interest in making themselves look good but the documentary you know documentary is a work of nonfiction and a, dra- a dramatic film is a work of fiction. Now, a work of nonfiction can still have a slant and an agenda. I mean, books, you write a book about anything, you're going to have your view of it in there, even if it's something mm-hmm. historical. But you don't, you know, a, a dramatic film, a comp, you know, a scripted film is there to entertain you. And I mean, it's the word entertain is a tough one with a movie like this. It's like being entertained, you know, by Schindler's list, but (laughs) to, to engage you emotionally in some way, whereas the documentaries are more to inform you and to give you the Mm -hmm. facts. And I don't Mm -hmm. know. I think like people just forget what a movie is for. I'm not going into this movie to learn about the Von Erics. Like I'm going into it to see a good movie with good performances and a good script and uh, a well-told story. And that's all I need. It's based on inspired by, real events it doesn't need to be like the be-all end-all testament of what happened for the historical record i think that's absolutely and i don't know where it like when and where and why things shifted but there has been this very like pervasive desire from a lot of people where if something is because i think the worst thing that happened is that people started thinking this was a biopic this is not a biopic this is a folklore as far as i'm concerned it's Um, like a movie like amadeus fits into this category it's one of my all-time favorite movies it's a phenomenal movie it's also total bullshit it doesn't matter who cares exactly exactly um but there's become this pervasive narrative where people believe that if you're telling something that is based even a little bit in truth that it has to be like one-to-one pov factual and it's like well no because even then there's going to be implicit biases from the people that were there like something that i've heard a lot of people complain about is that they think the movie was too kind to fritz von eric that i I think it was they, they didn't make him look mean enough and then so uh i did write a piece for slash film where i incorporated you know research that I've done as well as I spoke with Halt McCallany who plays Fritz and asked you know how do you approach playing this character who to the entire world is like super villain comic book super villain levels of evil but if you talk to Kevin Von Erich that's still his daddy like that mm-hmm. is somebody that he still loves and has a great reverence for how do you find that line and that's what this movie is doing is that there are moments where you know, I look at this character and I'm like, oh, you are messing these boys up. I hate you. You're terrible. And then there are moments where I'm like, man, that guy loves his kids. Like he loves his boys. He just expresses it in a very old school, macho, toxic masculinity way, because then you also start factoring in a lot of the context of 
what time period are we in? What was what was the pervasive social climate when he was raised? How were boys allowed to act? Because adding the the 2023 things of what we know now about what is actually good for parenting, what is emotional competency, a lot of those com- we weren't having those conversations in the 1930s when he was, you know, doing stuff that wasn't a thing then. So it's it goes back to that question of like is he, you know, this otherworldly evil or is he also a very tragic uh, product of his own environment and the generational trauma that got passed down onto these boys? Like there are so many questions that you can ask and the movie doesn't give you any clear cut answers. And I think that that's a good thing. I think we're supposed to walk away from this movie having our own feelings about this character. And then that even gets into the whole concept of kayfabe where people who've known Fritz are like, that man lived the gimmick until he died. Like he was leaning into kayfabe until he died so it's like okay well then how many of us saw these intimate moments behind the scenes with the family we didn't even some of their closest friends didn't see these things because if fritz was in front of anybody other than his family he was he was on and so it's like that that this is such a great story that shows why wrestling is so good because these blurred lines between reality and fantasy and fiction are like indiscernible at times yeah and i think that's true uh, about the perception too because i've i've come across people in my career i've even worked with one or two people who worked for fritz von eric who actually did there was a guy named dennis brent who was really good friends with jim ross and jim would take him with him wherever he went so like Mm -hmm. when when they they were in mid-south together then they were in crockett together then wcw wwf he was a he was a sweetheart of of a man and he, he started out working for Fritz and working in world class when he was very young. And he he never I mean, I remember him saying stuff like that, like he never um, or hearing through other people like there was no real indication to a lot of these people who that um, a lot of this stuff was going on. I do think that there was a missed opportunity narratively at the end where you get a sense, yes, that the marriage between Doris and Fritz is definitely going to be estranged going forward. You know, where he comes home and she's like, I'm not making dinner for you. I'm painting. Screw you. Do what you want, mm-hmm. you know. But I think there was a, an opportunity missed to really articulate that she finally did leave him, divorce him, and went to live in Hawaii with Kevin, which I think was that spoke volumes when I remember when that happened and it was just like, oh, OK, this this tells me all I need to know, because honestly, people at that advanced age typically do not get divorced. So, I mean, that tells you a mm-hmm. lot, you know. So one thing I will say, and this is, you know, if anyone from A24 is listening, please, please, for the love of all that is holy, give us a director's cut when uh, the this hits Blu-ray or physical media. There is a deleted scene. Because Holt talked to me about this where I asked him, you know, you know, what were the hardest scenes for you to work on? And the one that he said, he goes, there are two and neither of them are in the film. They didn't make the final cut, but they did shoot them. So, you know, maybe we will eventually get to see them someday. But if not, this will just live in our memory. Uh, He said the first one is that there is a scene where Fritz goes into the hospital chapel after Mike enters his coma and it's him arguing with God about why my family and the other one is Doris leaving him and him realizing the severity of oh she's leaving me and the way that he described it to me is that you know obviously losing your sons is horrible and is one of the worst things possible but the thing that breaks 
Fritz von Erich is her leaving because she was there before the boys. She was there after the boys and now she's gone too. Which um, I think, yeah, sorry. And I was, and so when, once he said that, I was like, I, I need that scene. I need to see this scene. I get why it was cut. I understand it timing wise, you know, what's going on climax wise. I get why it's not there, but Oh, I want to see it. <laughs> and I think what might've complicated things now that I think about it is if I remember this correctly, I think that she left him before Carrie died before the last. I think died. so. I think it was like, she had been estranged after Chris. And then I think, Carrie obviously forgive the horrific pun but like nail in the coffin like she was like that's it I'm done that's we're right. done so if anything um, they might have moved it I don't know so that it mm -hmm. happens after Carrie after the boys are all gone in some way to to get it in there but yeah this, you know it's so funny I'm definitely buying this when it comes out on blu-ray and this is one of those movies I'm usually not a big deleted scenes guy my thing is usually like if it got cut got cut for a good reason I don't really need to get hung up but this is definitely the kind of a movie where I'm going to watch every, if it's provided, every deleted scene, like, you know, with bated breath to see what mm -hmm. it adds to the story, you know? Absolutely. And something that I've seen a lot of people say is, you know, given how tragic the story is and how much it is, they were saying things like, well, I wish that it would have then just been a mini series. And I used to also believe that. I used to think like this would have been better suited for like a three, five parter, like limited series. But I also think that unless it was something that you binge watched, I do think a little bit of the emotional impact would have been lost if there was like delay, like, oh, you didn't watch this episode right after or, you know, they, what, the episode wasn't released right after. Because part of why this movie for me is so effective is, like you said earlier, that domino effect of it just keeps getting worse and worse and worse. If you give your audience that time to breathe, I don't think it feels as impactful and it runs the risk of becoming almost hacky because then it does become, oh, it's another episode this week. Which one of them is going to die now? And like it doesn't have that emotional weight that it does. Which brings me to a point that I know you and I both wanted to talk about, which is the Ric Flair. Oh, I'm glad you brought it up. I was just about the, to go for it. It was the like the thing that wrestling fans have been like wrestling fans talking about this guy not doing a good Ric Flair has turned into like, did you know Die Hard's a Christmas movie? Yeah, we know. We got it. <laughs> we heard 75,000 other people say the exact same tweet and make the same comparison you did. Like we're we're we hit our quota. We're good. We're good. Um, and yes, when I was in the theater at the premiere and, you know, the flair is doing his promo, I was like, you know, this isn't the best flair I've seen. I feel like everyone's drunk dad can do a better Ric Flair, <laughs> my dad included. However, comma, however big comma, I think if you at that moment thematically and where this movie is heading, have a good Ric Flair kind of pop out out of nowhere it would become way too funny. Um, people like it would kind of crush the rising action of, you know, heading towards this, you know, devastating ending. I think people would start laughing. Um, and part of me kind of likes that he's <laughs> kind of shitty uh, because it then hits a little bit harder when we do have him in the locker room, which I do think he's good in the locker room where you do get this, shining example of kevin von eric this good old boy from texas has done everything right and has you know been the the quote-unquote like good person and the positive role model 
and he's still not the one with the belt. Crazy, no fly list Ric Flair is the one with the belt. Yes. And he's he's gross and he's burping and he's awful. <laughs> and I think it's hilarious to me that and perfect that Ric Flair is the breaking point for Kevin Von Erich. Like Ric Flair is the moment where Kevin says, I can't do this anymore. Like I've, I'm I'm just gonna work behind the scenes. I just can't. This is too much. <laughs> and yeah, I think I think you're you're totally right. And I say this as somebody like Ric Flair is my dad's favorite wrestler. Ric Flair is what got me into wrestling. Ric Flair to me is the ultimate example of holding Have two me. truths in yeah, the absolutely. Same hand. I mean, he's my he favorite is, all-time wrestler. Like I get he it. is the most problematic figure in the world, and he's awesome. And yeah. he's terrible. <laughs> like yep. that's just that's the it's the almost truth wrestling. It's like wrestling in a nutshell. It's like the business. We love it. It's our greatest thing ever, and it's awful at the same time. Yes. Like how he's the embodiment of of it. But I have thoughts about the flare, and I'm okay. gonna Give I'm gonna your, articulate because I've been very quiet about this, and this is my perfect platform. So first, I want to say. That whatever you say about the Ric Flair and if you didn't like it, how bad it was, it is balanced out by having the most perfect Harley race. Oh, my God. Ever. He's so good. That guy <laughs> was more Harley race than Harley race was, I think. Like he was just like the perfect uh, embodiment of Harley race. Uh, the promo. I mean, people are like, well, wow, Harley's voice was a little deeper. All right. Who cares? The promo was phenomenal the the way he moved in the ring everything about him the gut everything it's like mm -hmm. that's harley race but i think and yes the here's the thing couple things about the flair the flair promo and the way player flair was presented was over the top cartoonish he was a total cartoon rick flair is an over the top cartoon so right. i didn't really mind this people are acting like a rick flair promo is like a Shakespeare soliloquy that you have to like perfectly adapt the tone and the sound like Ric Flair. And I mean this in the best, most complimentary way is ridiculous. Ric Flair is mm -hmm. ridiculous. And they captured the Looney Tune. <laughs> right. They captured the ridiculousness of Ric Flair. You know, you, you don't just want to have, it's not an impersonator show, you know, but but here's also why and I'm, I, I will defend the Ric Flair and why I will say that I didn't mind the Ric Flair. I'm going to get really like I'm going to get really English teachery here for a second. So <laughs> one of the themes in this movie is um, the 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 burden of having to live up to stereotypes of masculinity. Right. This is what weighs on the boys and Kevin in particular that they're in this business that is hyper masculine, hyper testosterone driven, and it can grind you into dust. And so um, you have on one side Harley Race, uh, who is like the the working class. He he's one form of traditional masculinity. He's the working class, blue collar kind of like tough guy at the bar. Who doesn't say a lot, but he's but you know he's going to kick your ass, and you, you know he does. You know he's like the John Wayne. Right. Mm -hmm. And then you have the Ric Flair, who is like the he's another stereotype of masculinity, the frat boy, the over the top braggadocious, the, the human peacock, you know, like mm -hmm. I I have all the money and all the girls like he's that version of it. And that's all it needed to be. And I think that's the reason why they went to the trouble of showing an entire Harley race promo. It's like all of a sudden the movie just turned into a wrestling show and then showing an entire Ric Flair promo. 
it was like we're giving you these two standards of masculinity that these boys feel like they somehow have to live up to or they're faced with and struggling with and that is the purpose that it served and and it worked mm -hmm. fine for me i had no problem with it Absolutely. And I also think that people, to some extent, I, I think that the same thing happens with like Macho Man Randy Savage and Hulk Hogan, like these figures that have gone beyond wrestling that are just pop culture phenomenons that you can identify outside of the world of wrestling. I think people even think of think of these characters in an over dramatized sense just in general not that they misremember them but i think there is a bit of like there's a default setting there's a default rick flair voice that exists in your head so then when it doesn't match up no matter how well it fits thematically within this movie you're going to be disappointed because in your head well the your internal monologue does a better rick flair than this guy yes. um so i think that's that's also part of it is being unable to have that cognitive dissonance between the Ric Flair that you know that lives rent-free in your head um, versus an actor cast to do a job. And and I think when you watching him and somebody that has, you know, watched and absorbed and reenacted a million Ric Flair promos, like one thing I will say is for better or worse, and yeah, it wasn't like the greatest imitation of Flair, but you could tell, I'm sorry, I can't remember. I don't know the actor's name, but you could tell that he watched Flair. There were things he did, like mannerisms and certain inflections and things, where you could tell that he had at least studied them to try to do a reasonable facsimile. Whereas you can't say that about all biopics and, and movie adaptations. Like there have been plenty of movies that I've seen that have even been about people's lives where I've gone like, I don't think that this person ever actually watched this musician or actor actually do anything because that what they're doing is nothing like what they used to do. Whereas the guy who played flair, at least he seemed to have put an effort in, into trying to study flair, you know, definitely. And the, the actor is Aaron Dean Eisenberg. And the big thing most people would probably know him from is that he played Todd Lang on the deuce for like 15 episodes, but otherwise like he's still kind of a relatively unknown guy. Um, so I don't know, maybe one day we'll get to see him do something like really big and see what he's really made of because everyone's like, that flair guy was a terrible actor. And it's like, is he a terrible actor or do you just not like the performance? Cause those are two different things. Right. He doesn't need to be some great, I mean, he's, he's trying to imitate crazy over the top wrestling promos. This isn't like some like deeply invested character in the movie. Maybe if they were, if this was the Ric Flair story, then certainly mm -hmm. we would have taken issue and said like, we right. need a better, we need somebody better to play this part. But for what it is, it's totally. Yeah. It, and it's also, if, if a 30 second promo is going to ruin an entire movie for you, you weren't invested in this movie to begin with. Like, uh, sorry, that's that them's the breaks. <laughs> yeah, no, I agree. I agree. And so, I mean, where do you do you see now we're in award season, right? Do you, do you see this movie getting any kind of recognition or acknowledgments? Because I'm I'm on the fence about it. Like, here's what I'll say. I enjoyed the movie. I loved it. I thought it was really well done. I don't know if it's a movie I'm going to like put in the same breath as some of the very best movies I've seen this year, like Killers of the Flower Moon or The Holdovers or. Uh, I don't know, whatever pops out, Asteroid City. Like, I don't know if it's to that level of, of you know, consideration. 
What do you think? I think for the awards bodies that do um, ensemble awards, I think this could take home some ensemble awards for sure because I love all of I love these boys so much. Like the way so David Von Erich was was my Von Erich. Um, I I can't handle how like because David I think is also kind of weird looking and I feel like people aren't going to be offended by me saying that but there's something oh, about he was he was totally weird looking yeah. he's like a weird looking guy but also <laughs> was like I'm gonna wear a cowboy hat and a vest and be the best talker you've ever seen I live for that like that is David was my guy and Harris Dickinson is so remarkable mm-hmm. um and has just you know it was really nice to just be like yep yeah, that's why I love David like you know- that's why he's my guy you know what so, they got across with David? I'm I'm so sorry to interrupt oh, you, no, but I had a thought yeah. and I'm going to lose it and then you can continue. But like w- what I loved about the David, the way they portrayed David is they were able to get across to you that even though this is Kevin's movie and Kevin's the main character here, it's clear that David was the best of them all in terms yes. of being a wrestler and a performer, which that's his reputation. Like he was the one that had the most uh, potential. He was the one that was the most natural, gifted performer of all of them even though carrie wound up becoming the most famous and probably the most successful because he's the most handsome <laughs> yes he was, he was probably the best looking one although it's funny to me like and i had this conversation with my wife and i've talked about i think there's a thing uh we're, we're, we'll go off the rails here but like i've had this conversation with people where i think that women are more forgiving about men's looks than men are forgiving about women's looks. In oh, 100%. <laughs> in the sense that, like, there's a phenomenon, th- th- this be, like, brutally, brutally honest, but, like, there's a phenomenon that I used to call with my friends, we used to call it something called ugly hot, where somebody <laughs> could be, they're hot, they're clearly hot, but they're not, like, conventionally attractive. And I feel like that happens much more, with men than women in the culture where like you have to be more traditionally beautiful or whatever for people to consider you like the best example to me is like, (laughs) you know, the Von Erics to me, and I brought them up earlier in the show. They're like the Beatles or like somebody like Mick Jagger, where you look at them and you're like, I don't know. These guys are kind of ugly. Like they're not really (laughs) the most, I'm being brutally honest. They're not the most like handsome looking guys, but yeah, they're sexy and women love them. There's something about them that they have this appeal where I think like if you're a man, you can be slightly ugly, I hate to use that word, and still be attractive. And I think the Von Erichs kind of fit into that category where they're kind of weird looking, like they're kind of a funky looking bunch of guys, but yet it's undeniable. They were they're, they're, they they were sexy. They were handsome. Women loved them. There was something about them. But they're, you know, kind of unusual looking, you know? Definitely. I mean, there's... <laughs> I'm sorry. I even, I'm I even so- saw some people that were like, but like, they're so pretty. Like, like these actors are so pretty. And you look at any picture of David on Eric, and I don't think his lower jaw was ever connected to his the top of his skull. He was always kind of <laughs> hanging a little slack jawed. And there's yeah. something about that. that It's the same reason why so many women are very fixated on like Danny DeVito or Steve Buscemi, who are both go. people that I find extremely attractive, but I know the rest of the world does not see them the <laughs> way that I do. That's fine. But I'm also 
you know, not straight. So there's that. And my, but my wife is like her, hers is Carrie. Carrie's her boy. David is my boy. So we, you know, we have very different, you know, views on the Von Eric. Je- Jeff Goldblum is a great example of that. I mean, Adam he's Driver become... falls under this too. Yes, yes. Oh, that those are great examples. That's what I mean. Anybody like... who can fill the void of the um, Italian American Jewish American handshake, any actor <laughs> who fills that void, probably a little weird looking, and probably why I find them hot. Like a- Adrian. <laughs> Brody, I mean, mm-hmm. uh, Al Pacino, even like oh, back in the Pacino. day. So right? handsome. like my daughter, my my 22 year old daughter is in love with 70s Al Pacino. You know, look, we all are. So <laughs> she's got great taste like Pacino, Dog Day Afternoon, the combination of Pacino and Sarandon for me. Like, forget about it. I'm I'm ugh, can't handle it. Oh, that's right. You're you're the big Chris Sarandon person who I mm-hmm. will say I will let, remind you once again in case you forgot that I lived in the same town as him, Fairfield, Connecticut, where I think he still lives. I'm not sure about that. Yeah, hosting his cooking podcast, being the coolest. <laughs> That's right. That's right. It, well, it tells you a lot about Chris Sarandon, the fact that Susan Sarandon was married to him for like five minutes and yet still decided to keep his last name for the rest mm-hmm. of her life, no matter what mm-hmm. happened, to the point that people today somehow think that they were brother and sister. And I'm like, no, <laughs> yeah. no, they're not brother and sister. She was married to him like 112 years ago and just kept yep. it. And they've both like remarried and are very happy, but they just, that's just the names, you know, right. it's just what it is. Um, back, <laughs> getting back on Yeah, track back to the Iron Claw. <laughs> not celebrity <laughs> thirsting uh, uh, publicly for, for consumption. Um, I think ensemble awards, they kind of have it in the bag. Um, it's like between them and probably uh, like The Color Purple or any of these movie musicals, because those ensembles are also fantastic. As far as like individual acting awards, I think in another like and a year that isn't 2023, I would be like, yeah, hands down, no brainer. 2023 was a shockingly packed year of very good movies and very good performances. Sometimes I struggle to do my like top 10 top 15s at the end of the year this year my struggle was how do I make them all fit because there was so much good stuff so I feel like Efron is the the one I think people have the biggest hype around because academy awards and just awards bodies in general are also an imperfect science and people talk all the time about how like oh so-and-so won this award this year but it's probably because they've been nominated so many times and it's their year to win, not actually for their performance. I think there is so much hype because people are breaking the high school musical view of Zac Efron and being like, oh, he's a serious actor, even though he's been doing serious work for the better part of like half a decade now. But this is the role that I think the general public at large is finally breaking, like he's finally breaking out of his, child star view that people have on him and even then they kind of still aren't because a lot of the press stuff was about uh Stanley Simons who played Mike you know singing high school musical to him on set um it popped up in a lot of interviews so it became a talking point so I think there's a lot of hotness there but like personally I would love to see Holt with a supporting actor nom but that's also an incredibly crowded category between, you know, your you got Robert Downey Jr. in Oppenheimer, you've got Charles Melton in May, December. Like there's, if you really want to go for it, you've got Ryan Reynolds and Barbie. Like there's some really good supporting actor performances. Also, I think they're getting choked out this year. Yeah. And I think, um, Oh, I'm so bad with names. Sessa, the kid from the holdovers, right? Would he be? Oh, Dominic. Dominic uh, Sessa. 
Sessa? Oh, he's so good. Wouldn't he? I don't know who would, who would be considered the supporting in that. It's kind of weird. I, maybe they're both lead. I, don't I know. think I think they're both. I think they both could qualify for lead, but they're gonna they're pushing Giamatti because he just won yeah. the Golden Globe. Like they're gonna push him for it. Oh, he's got to deservedly win. so. He's so good. <laughs> it's turned yeah. It's turned into a movie podcast, but I don't care because this this year I, I said this uh, to other people. I think this has been the best year for movies since before the pandemic destroyed the movie industry. Abs- oh, absolutely. Sure. No it's like, There's... it feels like it's recovered now, you know? Yeah. And I mean that literally, because I think back like the last year I felt this way about was 2019, where you had things like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and The Irishman and Jojo Rabbit and like all coming out like boom, boom, boom. Like this feels like that, you know? Mm-hmm. And what's interesting is I think next year is going to be weird because so much of production was halted uh, due to the strikes um, so a lot of stuff's getting pushed to 2025. So I think 2024 is going to be a weird year. And then 2025 is going to be another really big year. Um, there were, there were a couple of years there and I don't need to mention specific movies, but, and I, uh, there's always good movies in every year, but there were one or two years there where it was feeling a little bleak where I was starting to feel like are movies over. Like, are they, <laughs> are they just going to stop making them? And it sort of looked like. In some of the fields where I remember thinking, like, some of these movies, I don't know if they would get nominated. Mm -hmm. I I think they're reaching. I think they're trying to say, like, well, I guess we just have to pick the 10 best. Um, And and I don't feel that way anymore. That was happening for a time, Mm -hmm. though. No, definitely. Um, I would I would love to see this gets something, some sort of recognition. But if it doesn't happen, I don't think that it's a fault of this movie. I think it's just, there were a lot of movies this year that I was like, this is a nine, nine and a half star, 10 star movie for me. Like a lot of them. And so, I mean, we'll, we'll see. Uh, I know Academy voting starts on January 11th through the 18th, I want to say. Um, and, you know, obviously the awards are in March. So we'll, we'll see. And I think it goes without saying that we could all agree, at least, that Aaron Dean Eisenberg as Ric Flair needs to get nominated for Best Supporting <laughs> Actor. We could all agree with that, uh, if nothing else. No, but um... <laughs> I don't know. And then, like the other thing, too, is so and I can I can only say this from my perspective as somebody who works in film but is also a very huge wrestling fan. Uh, when I was doing the press tour and like interviewing people who worked on it, um, it was very apparent to me in talking with them that they were getting one of two kinds of interviewers. They were either getting film people who know dick all about wrestling and don't know how to ask questions about wrestling, or they got fanatic wrestling fans who don't know how movies get made. And so then I would come in and you, you could tell pretty quickly they were all doing like the scan of, all right, which category does she fall (laughs) into? And they realized pretty pretty quickly it's both like that i i can talk to you about wrestling but i can also talk to you about film so that everybody got a little bit more relaxed uh the, <laughs> they they're able to use you know lingo that they don't have to explain to people which i think is is very very helpful but something that i wish that wrestling fans would understand and as this is a wrestling podcast i think a majority of your listeners are wrestling fans and not, you know wrestling fans first film people probably second safe bet making making a movie is a miracle it is one of the hardest things that you can do. There are so many moving parts. There are so many people you have to answer to. There is so, There are so many ways for it to go wrong. And I say this as somebody who has made a not very good wrestling movie. Um, 
of which a character is named after you in said movie. <laughs> yes, he's evil. So thank you for that. That was great. <laughs> the evil wrestling manager is named Solomon. Yes. Yes, he is. Um, great. It just, it was the temp name and then it stuck because we we're like, no, it's just too good. It's just too good. We got to keep it. Um, but making that movie is extremely hard. Shooting a wrestling match is so much harder than people realize if you want it to look, you know, dramatic and not just a, a like a live action, you know, sports event that you'll see on TV. It's really, really hard. It's also like your insurance goes through the roof because it's dangerous. And if you're using actual wrestlers, this is the first time any of them have had insurance. So they're like, oh, I'm going nuts then because if I get hurt, I can actually fix it for once. Wow, let's do it. So to see this movie be as good as it is, like, I'll say it again, it is miraculous that it looks as good as it is, that the wrestling is as respected as it is, because it is hard. It is very, very hard. Not a lot of people can do it. And it's why we don't get a lot of wrestling movies, because you think about the grand scope of wrestling movies. Like, I love that we have a movie like The Iron Claw so that maybe we can wash a little bit of the stink off of Ready to Rumble, um, <laughs> <laughs> which like I'm I'm a David Arquette. People apologist. love that movie. I love, love David it. Arquette. I have a like I rewatched that movie recently, and I was like, the wrestling stuff's actually the best part about it. It's the everything else that's a problem in this movie. Um, but seeing this movie treat wrestling as a cinematic tour de force and the amount of people who are now getting into wrestling because of this movie or who didn't know anything about the Von Erics and now they're fascinated with wrestling history. So now they're getting into wrestling history and now they want to get involved and like they're going to indie shows because they want to see like, they want to see the indie stuff. Like they want to see the scrappier stuff that resembles what the territories once did. Like I have seen over a dozen people who had no interest in wrestling that are now going to like hood slam shows out here and GCW shows out here in LA. And I'm like, a movie did that to you. Mm -hmm. Like AEW on TV didn't do that. WWE didn't do that. The iron claw did that. And that to me, like that is worth celebrating. Yeah. And I think we're going to see more of it now. I, I was just talking to someone about this too, the other day that I think this movie is, is like kicking a door open, especially now that we saw that it passed the threshold, which doesn't really sound that impressive, but it is these days. I think it was mm -hmm. like $25 million for an R rated drama. Um, it, it shows you that there's money to be made. Like we, we already know the the queen of the ring, Mildred Burke movies coming out mm -hmm. next summer. And um, I think we're actually going to start to see more of this. There's been rumbling, I guess, about a Guerrero movie. I don't know. But yeah, there's been the other thing that I think does kind of suck in a way, though, is because there was so much hotness about the Iron Claw that the Cassandra movie got kind of stifled. Great. Yeah, great. Which example. I thought was great. Um, but, you know, that's we so we had a, we had we had that movie this year, too. We had two high profile wrestling movies this year with high profile actors starring in both of them and that's cool and I, yeah i'm all about having more of these stories um especially because there's unfortunately so many to choose from um you know yeah. again there's what five seasons of dark Sethering, four or five whatever it is like there's so many stories and that's scratching the surface of what's out there um and we're starting to see kind of this uh, appreciation for 
these muscle bound heroes again. Um, I one of my movie most anticipated films of this year is Love Lies Bleeding. While not a wrestling film, deals with a like a female bodybuilder. Um, that's really cool to me. I'm excited to see that. Um, and I will forever be mad that Glow was canceled after three seasons because of the pandemic, and I didn't get my ending. I that's my hill I'll die on. <laughs> I know Netflix is horrible like that. They'll just pull the plug on these shows just for even if they're doing well. It's it's unfortunate. But um, I think that, yeah, Dark Side of the Ring, like you mentioned, that's another thing that exposed people to a lot of some of these crazy stories and things that, mm -hmm. you know, are, are have a lot of dramatic potential to them. Yeah. And I mean, and it's all the stuff that, you know, we know so well. And I think that's the, another thing that wrestling fans are struggling with with this movie is so wrestling and horror have a big crossover as you and I are both obviously proof of but just in the general consciousness and it's not just because wrestling fans and horror fans like oh we have similar interests it's because in both fandoms they are viewed by the larger public as lowest common denominator entertainment uh people who are like hardcore into you know football tend to think that wrestling like oh that's not a real that's not a real man sport that's not real um and then you have people in the film worlds that look down upon horror movies because they're seen as schlocky or lesser than even though we know that that's not true and because of that the fandoms in both of these arenas are very passionate very dedicated and there defensive. is a reason there, yeah, there's a reason that there are horror film conventions and like wrestling fandom events, but there are not those for romantic comedies. Um, that's just not really a thing. Um, and if you want to do like a sport thing, it's related to a sporting event. It's related to, you know, there's a big basketball game. So therefore there's going to be this, you know, Hall of Fame thing or this museum or whatever. There's not going to be you know, random athletes showing up at conventions uh, the way that wrestlers do. And so because of that, because there is this intrinsic understanding that fans have that we kind of have something to prove, a lot of us tend to know a lot about the thing we're passionate about because we not only have to explain why we're passionate, but we also have to circumvent all the arguments that we know that we're coming. So fans of, of wrestling and of horror movies know more about their thing than anyone else on the planet knows about their thing. And so then when you have a movie like The Iron Claw that is not meant to cater to us, that is meant to cater to the general public at large, I think sometimes it can spark up that defense mechanism inside of all of us of, whoa, whoa, wait, no, but that's not, that's not right. That's not right. It's that knee-jerk kind of ag aggressive, like dog barking at the mailman we all get when someone's like, you know, wrestling's not real, right? It's like, <laughs> yes, we know. And you have to like explode it out of your body. I think that happens when you watch a movie about the thing you love so much, but it isn't for you. It's not meant with you in mind. Right. Um, there's a little bit of discomfort that we have to sit in. And once you are able to silence that part of your brain, and give yourself over to what the movie is trying to do, not what you want it to do, not what the the voice inside of you that has to get defensive about wrestling wants you to do, but actually sit and see what the filmmaker has to say. The Iron Claw becomes an infinitely more enjoyable experience, and it also allows you to, you know, interrogate some of your own feelings inside that you might have about the industry that you love so much because that it it does that with me i mean i am a, a very critical wrestling fan as much as i love wrestling um i think that just goes with being a queer person and being a woman um 
it's I can't suspend my disbelief so much when I know how much mistreatment has existed historically to people who share my identity markers in this industry. But uh, there are there were a lot of questions that I had about, man, this thing that I love so much, this thing that I've spent my entire life loving, um, irreparably damaged a lot of the people that are in it. And there's so much pain. And, you know, what does that say about me as a fan? Like, these are questions that I think are okay to to oh, sit sure. with and to ask yourself. And if the Iron Claw is inspiring that sort of conversation within fans, I also think that's a good thing. Yeah, I agree. And yeah, it is a complicated thing. And like, I, I remember, um, God, after uh, Chris Benoit died and after that whole thing happened, I was interviewed for something, for some documentary. And, you know, th they came to me and I detailed like every detail of what happened and why it was so terrible and i i knew nancy like myself i i've had lunch with chris benoit like i knew daniel you know i knew these people personally and we went through that whole thing and then at the end of the conversation they were like so could you ever see yourself you know going to work there again and i was like yeah probably like if they offered me mm -hmm. a job you know it, it is it's this weird i don't know even know how to describe it like codependent weirdness but we're always gonna love wrestling it's like dave Meltzer says this sometimes uh, where he very coldly and i don't mean that in a negative way but breaks it down it's like people just like wrestling and they just want to like mm -hmm. wrestling and uh, they'll acknowledge all these things about it and but at the end of the day people just want to watch wrestling and, uh, you know, sometimes the industry has been able to get away with things because of that very fact. Oh, absolutely. And something else I think is also really important is that, like, you also you can't go back in time and make something not mean something to you. You can't, you know, erase. I cannot. Go it doesn't matter what I learn about Ric Flair and what he does outside of the ring. I can't go back in time and make him not the biggest hero to me as a child like i have a, a a box of wrestling figures underneath my bed of wrestlers who you know either they have done something that is you know very inappropriate that does not align with my beliefs to the point where i don't want them on my shelf but i also haven't gotten rid of them i haven't mm -hmm. thrown them in the trash they're just in a box and they're under my bed because i can't make them not mean something to me and also because like you can't recycle these things um and i don't need to <laughs> i don't need to add more to the landfill um but also i just you can't make them you know not resonate with you and it's like yeah wrestling has destroyed the lives of a lot of people but has also brought a lot of happiness and it's the ability to hold those truths together simultaneously it's not a but they don't cross each other out it's not you know wrestling is awful but it makes me happy it's wrestling as an industry is pretty terrible sometimes and it's also really wonderful mm -hmm. yeah i mean that's the best way to put it it's funny you know i <laughs> i that, that's a great conclusion to make and i'm i'm was I was looking to wind up, but <laughs> I have to very quickly say, because you brought it up and I, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention this because we sort of just glossed over it. You made a wrestling movie. Okay. You I made did. the I movie's did. called, and you know, we don't have to get into in depth all about it, but you made a movie called power bomb, which is not just a wrestling movie, but a wrestling horror movie. So it mm -hmm. is the intersection of those two things. <laughs> and for people that want to find it, look, it has, Britt Baker in it from like before she was Britt Baker DDS. Oh, like this when... is Britt Baker dental school student. Yeah, the, the, <laughs> right, right. And and who else is it? There's another um who was uh, so is... the Matt Matt Cross is the lead in it. Um 
he's our he's our leading man um also Britt baker obviously uh ronnie jonah who if you are somebody who knows indie wrestling um she was an indie wrestler in the 2000s she was actually one of the miz's first valets when he was on on the indies but she has since you know left the world of wrestling behind and become an actor so she was perfect to get um but there is a wrestling match with matt cross as well as gregory iron um and uh super coptic justice they're both in it as well uh david direction has a small little cameo back uh when he was there i think he's Derek dillinger now um but back when he was you know still very much studying same with alex daniel um they're both in it there is a cameo um it's it, this movie is old enough that I, I feel like it's fine but there is a cameo from adam cole uh <laughs> when it, it was like right 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 before he signed with wwe i think like the paperwork brit said was like on their kitchen table uh when he <laughs> shot it i was like well i gotta shoot you now because i can't afford you in the next two weeks um so you know it's a movie about indie wrestling and about a fan who takes his fandom a little bit too far um i also whenever i talk about this movie it's the caveat of not only was this made for no money because all the money we did raise went to the insurance oh ricky shane page is also in this movie i don't want to forget ricky um i didn't even know that wow yeah ricky shane page has a has a small little moment um but there's all the money went to insurance uh so people all the time will be like i saw this movie and uh it looked really cheap and i'm like yeah man it costs nothing to make we (laughs) did not have money thank you for pointing out that obvious um but it uh you know this was the movie i mentioned earlier when i had pancreatic cancer um i was not expected to survive and i wanted to make a movie before i died and I wanted to make a movie that combined my two loves, which is horror films and wrestling. And so then I made the movie and then I didn't die. And now I have to answer for this movie every day. <laughs> but I am very proud of it because, again, making movies is a miracle. It's very, very hard to do. And I look at it and, yes, there's so many things I would change. And I promise when you watch it, there's probably things that you would change, too. I bet we have the same ideas. I bet we would both want to change these things. Uh, but the fact of the matter is, like, I got to make it. And that is that is a privilege. Uh, I'm still alive to hear people be mean to me about my movie. And that itself is a gift, is even being able to be alive to hear people shit on it. <laughs> and I second that heartily because I'm glad you got a chance to make it. I'm glad you're still here. There are many, many people in the worlds of wrestling and movies and beyond who are glad at how this worked out. And thank God that it did the way that it did. And I I also want to mention, um, and I know, you know, it's a wrestling podcast and it's decidedly male listenership, but I can guarantee you there will still be people interested in your podcast. So I just want to briefly talk about (laughs) this ends at prom. And so could you mention how people can find you and and find, because if, 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 if you love to hear BJ talk about movies, there's a lot of places where you can read and hear her talk about movies. So if you could let people know. Absolutely. Um, I'm on social media everywhere at BJ Colangelo. Um, and my podcast is called This Ends at Prom. I co-host it with my wife, Harmony, who is transgender. And we talk about coming of age stories either about or marketed towards teen girl audiences across all decades and genres, everything from Little Darlings to Xenon Girl the 21st Century, um, everything in between. And uh, we do 
we do end up finding ways to talk about wrestling all the time on the show because everything is wrestling. Um, and we have a lot of lists. Like we do have a lot of listeners that they're like, Oh, I pop so hard whenever you like randomly talk about wrestling on an episode. I'm like, yeah, it happens. Um, but you know, it's very much the, (laughs) it's kind of the girl version of what the iron claw does. We talk about, um, femininity and the way that, you know, femininity exists in our culture and what it does to girls and also how the patriarchy hurts everybody and what it does to boys as well. So um, if if that's a thing that you're into, uh, this ends up prom is on all major podcast platforms. And we do have a Patreon where we do talk about boy movies through our, we call it our Sadie Hawkins dance episodes. Um, so we do <laughs> talk about boy movies on the podcast and we have also done, um, you know, we, st- we still haven't done fighting with my family. That'll eventually end up on the show. We want to get, um, you know, a, a, a big hardcore like girl wrestling fan to come join us so that we can all just very much mark out and be really big losers about it. And it'll be very fun. So if, uh, if that's something that you're going to wait on, uh, I'll post it on social media. <laughs> Great. I would, I would second that. I listened to it and I know I, I, I may not be the, the traditional target audience for that. So I'm sure there are a lot of other people like me who either listen to it or would be interested in checking it out. Oh, definitely. So and I, mean, I encourage and- people to do that. And my wife's also real funny. So that's so I, we have listeners that are like, I just listen to hear Harmony make jokes. <laughs> I'm like, Well, good. I'm glad as long as you're listening. Well, this has been great. I'm so thankful that you made the time to do this. And I knew I knew this was the right choice. Like I wanted to talk about the Iron Claw so badly. And I was thinking, like, who's the person? And I was I, I, like, who could I get? who's who's well-versed in wrestling and movies from a film critic point of view. And I was like, boom, one person immediately came <laughs> to mind. And you you came through and you fulfilled all my expectations and then some. So thank you. Oh, well, I'm very glad to be here. I hope, uh, I hope your listeners are fine with me <laughs> ranting about movies into a, a microphone for an hour. But um, I don't get to do this very often because of the film stuff. So getting getting to sit down and, and talk about this uh you know it was it was a delight because wrestling has has had my heart as long as movies there you have it folks my conversation with bj colangelo and our thoughts on the brand new a24 motion picture the iron claw and if i could just sum it all up by saying i highly recommend that you see this movie if you haven't already it is well worth seeing, no matter what kind of uh, historical flaws and quibbles you may find in it, to see a movie like this that takes wrestling history so seriously and really tries to dramatize it in a respectful way is something that I never thought I'd see, and it's very gratifying to see. So check out The Iron Claw if you can. And thanks again to BJ for being a part of the show. Next week's episode is going to be something very exciting. If you are into Lucha Libre, then we are going to have one of the world's leading experts, and especially, I would say, leading expert in the English language. I'm talking about Roy Lushier. Roy Lushier is one of the most accomplished historians and collectors of Mexican wrestling and also Japanese wrestling to a certain extent and other wrestling. And he is going to be my guest next week on Shut Up and Wrestle for episode 104. Other great stuff on the way. I mentioned this couple of days ago on the Facebook group. But for episode 105, I have something very special, which I was saving. I wasn't sure when I was going to put it out there. 105 seems as good a number as any. But I've got another dip into the archives, the Brian R. Solomon archives. 
I did it before with Dusty Rhodes and Terry Funk. And this time, I'm going to be doing it with Bruno Sammartino, the living legend himself who I got to talk to in 2007 on the occasion of the passing of Arnold Skoland. However, we did talk about a lot of other things in that conversation, and it was a dream come true for me, and I'm going to be super excited to share that with you in a couple of weeks. Beyond that, I also have on the way to the show Kristen Ashley of Pro Wrestling Illustrated, for a discussion of women's wrestling. I've got the historian and author Steve Johnson on the way to Shut Up and Wrestle, and I also have an interview scheduled very soon with John Langmead, the author of the brand new book, Ballyhoo, the Roughhousers, Con Artists, and Wild Men Who Invented Professional Wrestling, a great look at early pro wrestling history. So we're stacked here. We've got great guests coming up on the way in the weeks to come, and more and more as we always like to do. So keep listening. You can check us out at our website, suawpod.com. And there's also all the usual places where you find podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, Podcast Addict, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, you know the drill. While you're at it, join the Facebook group, Shut Up and Wrestle with Brian R. Solomon. And if you'd like to make a contribution to the show, if you'd like to support the show in some small way, if you go to my Twitter page, Brian R. Solomon, you will find a button at the top for Cash App and Venmo contributions. If you're interested in using PayPal, you can find me on PayPal at brianrsolomon at yahoo.com. And thanks to all who have contributed so far. It is greatly appreciated. The other projects I work on, the Wrestling News, find it every single day from Arcadian Vanguard at thewrestlingnews.com or wherever you find podcasts. And you could also find it on the YouTube page of Arcadian Vanguard. The books I write. Blood and Fire, the unbelievable real-life story of wrestling's original chic, as well as superheroes, the history of a pop culture phenomenon from Ant-Man to Zorro. You can get them wherever books are sold. And if you'd like an autographed copy, reach out to me at brianrsolomon at yahoo.com. The magazines I write for, Pro Wrestling Illustrated, as mentioned at the top of the show, get it at pwi-online.com, as well as Inside the Ropes, which you can get at InsideTheRopesMagazine.com. If you're looking for me on social media, you'll find me on Twitter and Instagram at Brian R. Solomon. And on any of those social media platforms, you will find the link to my author page on the World Wide Web. Shut Up and Wrestle is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. And as always, this has been Brian R. Solomon asking you to keep those cards and letters coming in and reminding you of the words of the great Eli Whitney who said, get your stinking hands off my gym. So long, wrestling fans. Face.